Coming up this evening on NTD Business. The state of Nebraska notched the lowest unemployment rate in the history of America. We bring you an exclusive interview with the governor of Nebraska, Pete Ricketts, to see what the state is doing right. Coffee prices rising across the United States. We take a look at what's behind it and how smaller coffee companies are dealing with it. And Pfizer pulling its FDA request to authorize a two-dose COVID-19 shot for young children. What's the reason? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. This is as downbeat as Americans have been about the economy in over a decade. You guessed it, inflation. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index fell a stunning 8.2% in early February from just the month before, hitting its lowest level since 2011. Worsening personal finance prospects were behind the short slump. American consumers also less confident about the government's economic policies. They're also worried about a potential economic slowdown and rising inflation. And now, it's even coming for your coffee. That's really going to hurt. Prices for the most popular type of coffee have reached a 10-year high in America, but will higher prices dent your desire? Anthony Skustin and Kim has the details on how smaller independent coffee companies are dealing with the price surge. Have you noticed spending more on your morning coffee? For Arabica coffee, its average price per pound has risen between 50 and 75% from 2020, says Ji Yoon Han who runs Bean and Bean Coffee Roasters, which has four locations in New York City. Coffee that we would pay 3 to $4.50 for in early 2020. Now, we're, for the same coffee, we're paying uh, between 4 and $6. There are many reasons why coffee prices are rising this much, such as supply chain turmoil, freight costs, and weather in Brazil. That's according to Trevor Boomstra, a director in the restaurant's hospitality and leisure practice at Alex Partners. Whether it's labor, coffee beans, packaging materials, all the costs have really gone up over this past year. But the coffee retailers have been passing that on to consumers now with a couple of price increases, and that's expected to continue. The president of restaurant consulting company Hospitality Works, Izzy Karish, and his family own a coffee roasting shop outside of Chicago. Like Starbucks and other large coffee companies, they're starting to have to raise their prices too. That's our only choice. I mean, we're paying, you know, 20% more uh, now, 30% more for product than we were before. But some people aren't feeling the price increase at all. I haven't seen it um, yet. It hasn't affected me yet, but I'm going to look into it now that you tell me this. Others complain about the increase. Right now, coffee prices are um, more than unreasonable. But will this make people buy less coffee? Me, not necessarily. I drink coffee every day. Boomstra says they're seeing increasing demand for coffee across the board. Uh, the demand is not very elastic, uh, even with a higher price. So how are small and independent coffee businesses dealing with the price increase? Unlike big coffee companies, which are able to lock in prices years ahead, Jiyun Han says her business has to be more judicious and diligent about planning out inventory. The current situation really pushes us to think six months to 12 months ahead and try to secure coffee from farms and co-ops that, that we can uh, many, many months in advance. Kay Karish shares her strategy to survive. 
to establish very good relationships with my importers by forward. So when I find a bean that I like during a cupping, then I will have them put aside X number of pounds that will last me until the next season opens. As the container shortage begins to resolve and weather improves in Brazil, more coffee beans are expected to flow back into the United States. Boomster predicts that prices will start to moderate a little bit towards the end of this year. Christina Kim, NTD News. And to join a union or not to join a union, that is the question. Well, that's the question in some states, but it's out of the question in others. In non-right-to-work states, if there's a union in your company, you have to pay union dues no matter what, even if you don't want to join. In right-to-work states, you can choose whether or not to join, although you may be called a, quote, free rider for benefiting from the union without paying. But right-to-work can be attractive for workers who don't want to be part of the union. And it seems it's a big deal for businesses, too, especially when they decide where to set up shop. Right-to-work states are adding jobs twice as fast as the others, according to the president of the National Right-to-Work Committee. We ran the numbers and they check out. In fact, the top six states for job growth over the past decade are all right-to-work states. And this trend has only accelerated during the pandemic, giving an economic edge to those states that allow workers' choice. So joining us to discuss pro-employment policies is the governor of Nebraska, Pete Ricketts. Nebraska's unemployment rate is the lowest in the country at 1.7%. In fact, it has never been this low before. Governor, well done to you and your constituents, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure, and thanks for having me on. Governor, there in Nebraska, you have right-to-work laws that allow workers to not join a union if they so wish. You also have employment at will. That's where employers or employees can terminate employment at any time for any reason as long as no other law is violated. Just what role has this, let's call it, flexibility or freedom around employment had in keeping Nebraska's unemployment rate so consistently low? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, you know, we've got the lowest unemployment rate in the country. In fact, the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the United States. And it's because we have a pro-business state here. You know, we understand that we have to create the rules and regulations that allow businesses to succeed so they can create opportunities for Nebraska families. And so I think that when companies are looking at where they're going to locate or expand, they take into account some of the rules and regulations or laws like you talked about, being a right-to-work state. I know that when I ran a business, we, when we were looking to expand outside of Nebraska, we specifically looked at states, if you were not a right to work state, we did not consider your state for an expansion. And so I, I, I know from firsthand real world experiences, businesses look at that, it matters to them. And so that's one of the ways that we attract people here. Of course, we also have a great workforce, uh, again, coming from the business world myself and having hired lots of Nebraskans. I know when you hire a Nebraskan, you get somebody who's well-educated, who's got a great work ethic, customer-focused, uh, loyal, and they help companies succeed. And so that, that's also another reason why companies come here. How do you avoid the pushback that some other states find when they want to introduce these pro-business policies to get pushback from the other side that, no, we, we don't want that type of policy here? Why not in Nebraska? Well, I think Nebraska has always had a mentality where people want to work. You know, not only do we have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, but we've got the highest workforce participation rate in the country, the highest uh, employment 
per capita ratio in the country. So Nebraskans want to work. And I think that that culture, that mentality has always been a part of how we, you know, structure our rules, regulations, and laws here in the state. So it's always been favorable to that. I think that, uh, you know, it also helps that, um, you know, we've got a state where you've got that agricultural background. So that strong work ethic has always been a part of our, our state's history. Um, Governor, I wanted to get your thoughts as well. I think you're coming from a pretty unique perspective on this. As you mentioned, you were a business owner. Now you're a governor, you've constituents to keep in mind. So you have a lot of things to balance here. I want to ask you about the Fed's plans to raise rates, because I know even in Nebraska, I'm sure your constituents are feeling inflation. But at the same time, we spoke with a business owner here in the city yesterday. He said, well, if you start raising rates, you're going to hurt business. You hurt business, you're going to hurt prosperity, and you're going to cause inflation or cause other economic hardship for constituents that way. What are your views on that? Yeah, actually, I, I would actually take issue with that statement. I think that actually, if you think take a long-term perspective, the Fed is, has been too slow to act with regard to inflation. And of course, the Biden administration is compounding it with the huge spending programs that they are either enacting or that they're trying to enact. So inflation is one of the most regressive things we can do for working families here in our country, and particularly I'm worried about in my state. You know, a lot of people in my state travel long distance, maybe 60 miles a day to their job. And when gas goes up as much as it has because of the bad policies of the Biden administration and because of inflation, that hits right in the, the pocketbook. Uh, if you talk about what's going on, you know, if lunch goes from eight bucks a day to 12 bucks a day, that makes a difference. And if, you know, everyday Nebraskans are seeing that inflation, that means they're not going to have the money to be able to spend in those businesses. So I think it's important for the Fed to act to be able to control inflation. You know, we just saw the worst inflation we've had in 40 years. This is one of the top things the Fed's supposed to be working on. They haven't done it. And so that's a fault of the Fed. And of course, the administration is only compounding the inflation with all their bad policies. So you think fiscal and monetary policy has played a significant part in the inflation we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Look, when you print as much money as the Biden administration has printed, that's going to drive inflation. When you have a Fed that has been as easy with money as they have been, you're going to drive inflation. And both of these groups are responsible for what we're seeing right now, and they both have to act so that just everyday Americans are not being harmed by inflation. You know, I was, you know, I was a young person back when we had the inflation and stagflation, you know, of the, the early 80s. And let me tell you, it has a devastating impact on families that, again, because it's been 40 years, a lot of people don't remember, but especially apparently the people on the Fed and in this administration, the Biden administration, but it is something that is just terrible for families. And that's why we have to act quickly to address inflation. Back then, and finally, Governor, back then they had to take quite drastic action to do it, raise interest rates by, what, 18%, something similar. You think it's going to take something similar this time around? Well, I believe the Fed would act more quickly to be able to, you know, scale back what they're doing with regard to their purchases and what they're adding onto their balance sheet uh, and looking at what they're doing with regard to rates. It won't have to be that bad, but the longer the Fed delays, the harder this is going to be to control, and you, if they if they continue to not act, at some point down the road they will be forced to act, and that's when you get into the situation where you may have those super high interest rates. If they act now, they can avoid it, but by delay, you're only going to make it worse down the road. Governor Ricketts, really appreciate that insight. Thanks so much for coming on. Great, thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. 
And Pfizer has delayed its application to drug regulators for its COVID-19 vaccine for young children, saying they want to see more data first. The vaccine is for children from six months to four years old. Pfizer was seeking emergency use authorization for a two-dose regimen. Today, the company said it wants to wait for data for a three-dose regimen, which they say they're also testing. The FDA said today they'll decide after they look at data on a third dose in the age group from the ongoing trial. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine brought in a bumper income of nearly $37 billion in sales for 2021. It's also forecasting another $32 billion in vaccine sales for this year. Amazon workers who are vaccinated against COVID-19 will no longer have to wear masks in warehouses. Well, in some states at least. The retail giant announced Friday it is lifting the requirement for workers in states that have eased up on their mask mandates. Employees who are not vaccinated or work in states where mask regulations are still in place will have to continue to mask up. Amazon said it made the decision due to a sharp decline in COVID-19 cases across the country. The company is also changing its paid leave policy starting March 18th. Only fully vaccinated employees will get paid for leave during, due to COVID-19. Unvaxxed workers can still take up to a week off, but it will be unpaid unless they have a company-approved exception. And the government of Ontario has succeeded again in freezing access to funds raised for the trucker protest, this time on Give, Send, Go. Although the crowdfunding platform says Canada has no jurisdiction over how it manages donations, People are now turning to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to raise the funds instead. Anthony's Phil Zoe has more. A Canadian court has frozen $9 million on Give, Send, Go that's been donated to the Freedom Convoy protesters. That's after freezing $10 million last week on GoFundMe, all to defund the protesters. I think it's a fundamental human right that humans should be able to pool together capital for causes that they're passionate about. And this is a very moral and ethical cause. Hartej Sani is founder and CEO at cybersecurity and blockchain company Zokio. This isn't the first time that we've seen governments or big tech uh, issue mandates on who can or cannot receive money. Adopting crypto as early as 2012, Sony says Bitcoin was created to cut out corrupt middlemen. There's a platform called Tally that is being leveraged uh, by the crypto community, and that is what has replaced GoFundMe for the Freedom Convoy. Named as Bitcoin for Truckers and Honk Honk Hodo, the crypto fundraiser on TallyCoin has raised 21 Bitcoins so far, or nearly $1 million from 5,000 contributors. Transactions will be faster, will be easier, fees definitely will be lower. So I just see absolute advantage over using cryptocurrency and blockchain for crowdfunding projects. Blockchain developer Daniel Lagvin says a decentralized exchange like PancakeSwap or Uniswap is one way to do it. By creating a smart contract, this will automate the process of transactions and no one, no organization is going to have the possibility to manage those tokens. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Wall Street ended sharply lower today. The Dow fell 504 points, about 1 in 4 tenths of a percent. S&P 500 lost 85 points, 1 in 9 tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq today dropping 395 points, 2 and 8 tenths of a percent.
and share buybacks. They're controversial, but they've never been as common. Buybacks are up for six quarters in a row. It's estimated to hit a new record in the fourth quarter of last year. Recently, Twitter announced it's going to buy back $4 billion of its shares. So why do companies buy their shares back anyway? Why do some people support it while others criticize it? What exactly are share buybacks anyway? Anthony's Olin Richards tells us. Twitter had strong year-over-year revenue growth despite missing some key analyst projections, such as having 1.6 million fewer monetizable daily active users than expected. The stock price has been on a general downward trend for the past year. Amid this, Twitter executives announced... Our board of directors has just authorized a new $4 billion share repurchase program, which is effective immediately. In other words, a share buyback. This is when a company buys back its own shares, decreasing the number of shares on the public market, which generally increases the value of the remaining shares. It varies depending on circumstances whether it's a good idea or not. George C. is the chairman of Annandale Capital. C. says companies generally do this when they think their share price is too low. A lower price means your investment is worth less if it's undervalued than it should be. Buybacks are controversial. Some support them and some criticize them. People who support share buybacks say the companies generally have nothing better to do with the money, and the shareholders can use the money they receive to invest in other ventures. Also, share buybacks are seen as better than dividends because dividends are taxed. Everybody wins with these stock buybacks except the people that complain that it's not a good thing. Michael Bussler is a professor of finance at Stockton University. He is a proponent of stock buybacks. It takes capital that some corporations have earned but may not have good investment opportunities and ends up giving it to capital to firms who have very good investment opportunities, really need the capital, that benefits the economy as a whole. But not everyone agrees. I am vehemently against share buybacks. Don Kaufman is the co-founder of Theotrade, an online financial education provider. Kaufman says, All of this is to the benefit, if you will, of the executives and the board. This can be the case when management compensation is tied to earnings per share. Their compensation involves stock and when they own stock in the company. Share buybacks can also not be ideal when the money could be used for other things. The share price is overly high and when companies take on debt to do these buybacks. Where's this longer debt going to? Like we're going to constantly refinance the debt. What is this going to look like when eventually, you know, inflation does hit with exactly what we're seeing right now? Twitter CFO Ned Siegel told CNBC they have enough cash to continue to invest in the growth opportunities inside the company, but also return cash to shareholders. Other companies like Apple are known for using debt to buy back shares. Arlene Richards, NTD News. With that, we're going to take a quick break, but still to come. I found out about this rich history of women making wine with flowers, and I was like, I want to do that. We talked to an entrepreneur with a blossoming business selling what could be the perfect Valentine's Day gift. That story coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. With Valentine's Day coming up, you might be thinking wine or flowers. Why not combine the two? 
One entrepreneur in California is doing just that, and her business is blossoming. Alia Nitoto at Free Range Flower Winery makes her wine from flowers, not grapes. Over on our website, you can find flavors like lavender, rose hibiscus, marigold, even rose petal. Her company is committed to using organic ingredients, sustainable business practices, and local vendors. Not only that, it's also giving back to the community, donating a percentage of sales to nonprofits in the Bay Area. So joining us is the founder of Free Range Flower Winery, Elia Nitoto. Elia is calling us actually from a brand new shed they've just um, purchased on the winery. Elia, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Elia, such a unique idea. I think anyone who's seen the visuals, it, it looks just incredible. What inspired you to, to follow through with this? Well, I mean, I've always been interested in wine. Wine is something that is I've always been passionate about. And I even tried to apply to uh, some vineyards when I was in college um, for, uh, you know, to, for an internship. And I, I didn't get any internships at the time. That was, you know, like early on in um, uh, my career. And uh, I moved on to other things like herbalism and um, learning how to take, you know, like uh, to make remedies and stuff like that. And then while I was doing it, I found out about this rich history of women making wine with flowers. And I was like, I want to do that because it kind of like, like incorporated the herbalism that I had with um, wine, with winemaking, which is something I've been passionate about. So tell us a little bit about the process you had to go through to actually create this final product. Oh my God, it took a while. I'm like to create, like it started, I was like, look, I, I can show you some of the bottles here. This is, this is, mar this is uh, my uh, rose hibiscus and marigold. And this is my um, my lavender, wow. and lavender was the first wine I started with, and it was and it's the, the the flower that I've been the most obsessed with. It smells amazing. I would use it in everything, and I'm like, I'm going to make wine with that. And um, and I just started at home, just learning how to to do it. Um, um, the way you make wine with flowers is you take the flowers and you either pour hot or, hot or cold water, depending on how delicate they are and how delicate, delicate the aromatics are. And, um, and it will, it'll draw out the, um, the essences of the flowers. And then you can uh, basically treat them like you would any other um, juice that you were gonna use to make wine. Are these alcoholic wines or non-alcoholic? They are alcoholic wines, yeah. We do have, as like flowers do have some starches that can turn into alcohol, and we do have a sugar source that is all organic, and um, we try to use fair trade because we want to make sure workers are getting, um, you know, um, fair compensation for their efforts. Um, uh, uh, but, the, but it's all, you know, so it's a, a really high quality sugar source um, that's added to it. And it's basically the same thing that wines do. A lot of winemakers, when they have grapes, you may have something that has enough uh, um, of a sugar, so sugar source in the grapes themselves, or sometimes they, um, they, they, um, they augment that to get the, fl the flavor profile they want. How's the feedback been for people who've tried it? 
It's been amazing. It's been really, really amazing. They're, they're, they're amazing wines. It's like they, uh, um, depending on the wine, like, like, uh, uh, rose hibiscus tends to be a, a wine that, um, is more sensory to what you're used to in a wine, kind of like a Pinot, but, um, like a floral Pinot, um, or a Sangiovese, if you know that kind of wine, it, it has a very, it's a, it's a red that's a light to medium body that has a, a um, just like this really lovely floral aspect to it. Um, to um, people's reactions to lavender is completely different. It's usually like, whoa, what is that? Because it's the imagine, wine that, yeah. has, that is the, it, you know, I call it my wild child wine because it's the one that says, don't try to have any preconceptions about me. I tell you who I am. And um, people love it. It's really wonderful. Lavender wine. Never saw that see the day. Aliani Toto, uh, Free Range Flower Winery. Really appreciate it. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Nice way to end the week. That's the latest business updates. You can still catch into the evening news with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Today, business, it's all for this week. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.